0: Keepers of the Word. We're an esoteric study group of Freemasons. Our purpose is to share knowledge of mystery schools and debunk any misconceptions about masonry. You're here with uh, Ron and James and today our special guest is uh, P.D. Newman. Brother P.D. Newman, author of the book. Um, Yeah I know I did lots of research. Um, alchemically stoned, the psychedelic secret of Freemasonry, thanks for uh, joining us today, brother. We really appreciate it
1: it 's my pleasure really
0: so where uh Where are you hailing from this morning
1: i 'm in Tupelo, Mississippi uh, on our um, family farm here uh, taking refuge from the the sun this morning it 's already almost uh, eighty five out there it wow. 's so hot today.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah, Stay inside, right?
2: Yeah. It's, real, it's really hot <laughs> over here in California. I think it's about 75. Oh, that's
0: so nice. Oh, <laughs> well, we yeah. Got, we got overcast here next to the coast. So where are you, our where natural are you? ACs kicked in. I'm in like, San Pedro, so just across California from California? Long Beach for these
2: guys. He's in San Pedro. Yeah, I'm in Long Beach.
1: Gotcha. I spent a little bit of time up in Northern California around uh, uh, in a town called Hay Fork. Cool. Where at? Hay Fork. Um it's up close to Mount Shasta, that area.
2: It's a beautiful area.
1: Okay. Really yeah.
0: yeah, that's nice. Rough area. So so this this rabbit hole that you went down with the book, what what how did you go down that rabbit hole? What it's a big rabbit hole there what yeah that's
1: Um, a big rabbit hole well i you know uh before i was interested in freemasonry i was very interested in psychedelics um, and was really looking at um, investigating the mystical side of it the ritual use of it Uh, but at the same time my own experience with it you know i didn't really have any kind of uh, guides we don't have elders in our community that walk us through those kinds of rites of passage. And I felt like, uh, uh, like I was kind of out of my element. And at that point, I thought, you know, maybe I should search out a more traditional rite of passage that might give me a grip on some of the more um, kind of out there things I was undergoing on certain psychedelics, like DMT and mushrooms and lsd and mescaline i mean we were experimenting with anything that you would call a psychedelic a hallucinogen um pretty heavily and uh and it got kind of uh, like i said i kind of got out of my element with my experience so uh, i'd had family members who were freemasons um and in the south freemasons a very popular thing uh, so i turned to freemasonry as a as a uh, sort of write a passage that would give me a framework by which to interpret this stuff and uh it was only to my surprise that i encountered the sprig of acacia when i became a master mason and in my experience when we were experimenting with dmt we were extracting it from acacia so of course my ears perked up real high and uh i thought you know surely this is uh, i 'm um, just reading into this. this is just a coincidence, and I set that aside and kind of wouldn 't let that curiosity arouse me too much because you know I wanted to experience masonry for what it was, not project my own stuff into it and uh and so, yeah, I just kind of left that alone and it wasn 't until uh several years later that I was reading the rituals of a man named Alessandro di Cagliostro who. Created something called the Egyptian Rite of Freemasonry, um, and in it, he specifically had candidates drinking um, drinking acacia, drinking a, uh, an alchemical tincture or, or elixir prepared from acacia. And uh, he tells them in the ritual that the sprig of acacia you were given in the ordinary degree of Master Mason was. This prima materia, and from it we extract the philosopher's stone, and that's what you're drinking now, et etc et cetera. So, right there, plainly in your face, was this, you know, clearly not symbolic, a literal drinking of, of acacia in a, in a ritual. Mm-hmm. So, of course, you couldn't set that aside easily. There's no, no other reason than an entheogenic one in my, in my estimation, and why they would be drinking acacia at all. And when when you read uh, in the ritual, the effects that Cagliostro uh, attributes to this uh, elixir, it's in keeping with low to moderate doses of DMT uh, dimethyltryptamine, which is in, in acacia. The, uh, well, it's a certain, certain species of acacia have it in their root bark primarily, but uh, so yeah, once I saw that, I said, well, you know, I have to seriously kind of consider the fact that it might have been put here for that reason in the first place. And that's how, you know, the book came about was me
0: trying to research that. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I personally, I think I, I got introduced to the whole DMT discussion um, from Rick Strassman's yeah. movie, uh, the, the spirit molecule. And, um, and he talks about how it's in so many different places in nature and and that the acacia is one of the largest the acacia bark or roots is one of the largest um sources of dmt and as soon as i heard that i immediately did the exact same thing i'm like you know if we're a mystery school if we're if we're if we have symbolism within our craft why would you put the sprig of acacia if it didn't have some type of of ethnogenic Mm -hmm. message to
1: it for sure yeah i agree i think so too and once i started investigating the history of it i I didn't get this far in uh, alchemically stoned simply because the information wasn't um, available to me at the time but in my new book my forthcoming book angels in vermilion um, i was able to trace the lineage by which this entered into freemasonry Uh, and it happened through uh, the royal society through certain members of the Royal Society who believed that um, a couple of Elizabethan era maguses and alchemists named Dr. John Dee and Sir Edward Kelly, they believed that they were using this red powder to communicate with angels. And them being, you know, the scientific mental persuasion, they immediately said, well, if he's using a physical substance to communicate with non-physical entities, then it must be, be a drug. And uh, that sends Boyle and the entire Royal Society on this pursuit of psychedelic drugs that was actually published by the Royal Society in 2010, something called Boyle's Wish List. And it's a list of everything he wants to acquire for them to study. And it's all drugs. He says he wants hallucinogenic drugs, drugs that cause uh, pleasing dreams, that cause epileptic fits, drugs that cause uh, fits of strength. You know, he's looking for what, what allowed them to talk to angels? He's trying to find it. And so it's from that background, that kind of inquisitive, what you call pharmacognostic background, looking for drugs and plants, that this man named John Theophilus de Sagulier, who was the third Grand Master of the Premier Grand Lodge in London, it's the background from which he emerged when he became Grand Master. He was research assistant to Sir Isaac Newton in the Royal Society,
2: wow. investigating psychics. Wow. Right. So
1: in and, and not just any psychedelics. He specifically says he's mm-hmm. looking for a fungus that's mentioned by a French author. Um there's a lecture given by Robert Hooke, who was uh Isaac Newton's arch nemesis on uh some hashish his buddy brought him back and he tried it and talks about how it gave him the munchies and made him pass out. Like <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's not like uh, the acacia appeared in freemasonry in a vacuum you know before it was acacia you look at the older rituals there's no mention of acacia it's a mention of a sprig of cassia and there's an argument that it's just pronounced differently that cassia is acacia minus the initial letter um, what's called elision. whenever you leave the initial letter off of a word so acacia becomes cassia but That doesn't really hold up because cassia is already a thing. It's mentioned in the Bible as a cinnamon-like spice that's used in embalming. You can buy it in grocery stores today. So it wasn't until after Desagulier shows up as grand master that all of a sudden cassia becomes acacia in every lodge in Europe. Every single expose you find after Desagulier was grand master, cassia becomes acacia. And Dr. Uh, David Harrison, who wrote the genesis of Freemasonry, the lost rights of Freemasonry, he argues that it was Desaiculier who made that change, who put that sprig of acacia in there. And like I said, we know what background he came from. Yeah. Yeah. And we know what ends it was used by uh, Cagliostro just a
0: couple of decades later. So can you talk a little bit about Cagliostro? I got I think I actually found I was looking to do to try to incorporate some type of ethnogen into a ceremony, especially something masonically, and I saw your book, and then started doing the research on Cagliostro, and yeah, that's when I was like, okay, so there's already something that's there and written. So how can we get that?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, he, he his, um, he he was a mystic. He was a healer. He was an alchemist. Uh, he was imprisoned for heresy uh, and died while imprisoned um but his ritual he created isn't like it's a lot of people conflate it with the rituals of memphis and Mizraim. it's not those those are equally egyptoid i don't i'm reluctant to say egyptian because they're not actually egyptian they're egyptian styles but they're not actually wow. egyptian rituals you know like, right. was, egyptian Rite was founded in london so um But even though they style themselves Egyptian, Cagliostro's was was very different from theirs because his was just a three degree system. He was redoing masonry. He wasn't doing like hive masonry. Um, And even though he limited it to people who were already master masons, unless they were women. And then they had a separate rite they went through under a female hierophant uh, or priestess who went by the name of Queen of Sheba ceremonially. And. I'm not sure if that ritual was identical or or tweaked some for females, but uh, but the bottom line was his was a three degree system, and in it he he's it's hard to determine if he's transvalu transvaluating the 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 sprigification to borrow like a Nietzschean term, taking it and making it be something else, appropriating it um, to a hallucinogenic because we don't see it used in a hallucinogenic context. Before Cagliostro and Melasino, Melasino we see it before Cagliostro. Actually, Melasino was a Pyotr Ivanovich Melasino was a Russian artilleryman and uh, an alchemist, and he claimed to have learned the secret from a German doctor named Johann Kirstens, who was the first doctor of chemistry at Moscow University, and uh, uh, he basically. gives the same recipe that Cagliostro gives in his ritual on how to extract from the prima materia, AKA the acacia, this philosopher's stone, and then how to uh, apply it ceremonially, um, and how to get the, this, uh, common result between the two. And what's interesting is both of them knew each other. They were colleagues when, I don't know if you're familiar with the whole diamond necklace affair, Falconelli story, but when he went to Russia, um, he met with Melasino. Melasino was his contact. So this stuff, you know, it's hard to say who got it from who, where it came from, but it looked like it was being passed around um, within certain circles, specifically alchemically inclined circles within Freemasonry.
0: Awesome. Almost like a double trust system, Mm -hmm. huh? Like they, they wanted to keep it with people that they knew Mm -hmm. they could trust as alchemists and as masons as well huh
1: well and you got to keep in mind too the 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 time at which this was taking place there was no real there was no war on drugs there was no real no, knowledge of addiction outside of alcoholism and some knowledge of opium addiction coming out of laudanum use and and stories oh you know there was no big addiction problem and so drugs weren't viewed with the kind of negativity they are now and especially a drug that would induce visions you got to keep in mind for these people it would have been like Jamie Paul M argues in the forward to my new book he says they would have interpreted this as a revelation as like Ezekiel or in terms of John of Patmos this would have been earth shattering visions that they would have reserved specifically for people that they I think would known would have appreciated them for, right. uh, for what they were. It wasn't just an idle curiosity or tripping out or let's get high. It was a very spiritual. For example, when Melisino used it, his, he only used it in the seventh and final degree of his system, which had to take place in a church. And he saw it as a
0: religious act, you know. Sacred. Right. It really is. And really, it's, it's hard to, you know, as someone who has experienced psilocybin to try mm-hmm. to have conversations with someone who hasn't is pretty pointless because you, pointless. you know, even just the, the descriptions you give, like I remember coming back my first time and, and talking with people about it. And I was like, I communicated with plants and they're like, so did you talk to them? And I'm like, don't have to. talk, talk, talk is such a weird word. <laughs> the closest, the closest thing I came to was that there was an exchange of information. A there commu- was some type of, <laughs> there was, commu- absolutely, there was a, there was a, a, I got something that the plant was sharing with me and I gave something, you know, it was definitely. You heard a, with a, a your feelings.
2: No. What's up You heard with <laughs> your feelings. <laughs>
1: I guess, whatever. But, yeah.
0: And, and people are like, okay, whatever. Yeah. You right. talk to plants. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, you so. things like boundary disillusion and, you know, uh, ego death phenomena and it's hard for it's hard to imagine Mm. in a state with no experience much less communicate what that would be like
2: i was going to ask you um what do you think the the, i mean i I know personally but you know you did research on this i I want the viewers to kind of get an idea the difference between having experience with psychosyllabine ayahuasca or, or or some uh, transcendental um, Hallucinogen, uh, an experience of you in your backyard in a pretty garden versus a ceremonial setting. Uh, can you kind of explain the difference of that and the importance of that as well?
1: Yeah, well, they both have their place. Um, yes. You know, th- there's a lot to be said for just taking the medicine. And, or, I, I, I hate this. I usually don't say medicine. I try to say sacrament. Um, but in this context, I'm trying to say if it's needed to be used to remedy a a situation, you know, a lot of just sitting there to, to, taking it and, and accepting it for what it is, which is you accepting you for what you are really, you know, there's nothing in the plan. It's all you, it's pulling you out. Yes. But, but in certain, for certain, uh, ends, just being surrendering is enough. We, humans don't know how to surrender and just to be able to surrender and say, okay, to an experience and allow it to happen. That's a huge step. Now, when we're talking about ceremonially, um, using these things in, in a ritual. And when I mean say ritual, I mean a series of steps designed for an outcome, you know, um, uh, the ceremony becomes, uh, it's your control panel. Your altar becomes a sort of control panel is the way uh, a lot of magicians talk about it. And they're, and they're right. Yes. Um, but what the rituals do is uh, they keep you focused. And, uh, and you'll see it in a lot of the modern churches that incorporate these kind of sacraments, like uh, the Santo Daime, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And the Unio do Vegetal, um, the UDV, um, mm that use ayahuasca you'll notice they they do it in singing and standing up and doing these yes. dances lights are music. on music very focused you don't leave the room and no whereas if you take it in a more traditional setting um in the jungle they do it in total darkness and uh, you'll talk you'll hear terrence mckinnon talk about s- silence and darkness and earplugs no music you know the, these are fundamentally different ways to approach it one is the surrender and the other is is willpower is saying i want to use this to become something else to change myself or to change reality and conformity with something else and in that sense the ritual becomes uh like i said it becomes the uh, the template um by which you interpret the experience and it sounds silly but it's uh or, or at least trivial from someone who's not familiar with the deep psychological results that come from ritual, but just having a simple ritual set up, uh, even something as simple as, as, as bathing, meditating, reciting mm-hmm. a simple mantra, lighting a candle, and then closing your eyes and letting, let it happen. You have it just setting an it intention. It's amazing how we script our experiences. With, yes. Not, not just with psychedelics every day we wake up and script our day and don't realize it. When you take psychedelics, you have an opportunity to see firsthand how fast your scripting works and happens. That's what magic really is, in my opinion. You know, scripting, scripting
2: your experience. I'll say, as a uh, experienced uh, psycho, not myself, that's probably the best description and definition I've I've ever heard. <laughs> that hits a T because you know I've I've done both: sitting in your backyard in a beautiful environment, you know, and like you said, just learning what the, the sacrament can do for you and then discovering your true self, what that's going to come out, what's going to come out of you and then to do it in a ceremonial setting where you have direction, you have a focus point, um, where the music, the singing brings you along, keeps you focused on on what your intentions were that, that you said, or that you asked in prayer or, or anything like that before during the ceremony, um, two vastly different, um, perspectives but uh, both are really needed you know first you have to do that that self-discovery okay this is who I am when when everything comes away you know this isn't uh, the James walking down the street this is the James who's at home eating a bag of chips watching tv you know meeting yourself like that and then in a ceremonial aspect we have direction and, and it's you taking that self and growing expanding yourself in a self-determined direction so that was a really amazing uh definition Best one i've actually ever heard i
0: think in, i think maybe another benefit of the rituals um ceremony situation can also be you know if it's your first time doing something like the very first time that you take ayahuasca or something like that it it can be a really frightening experience because you oh. don't know what to expect mm-hmm. and i think part of the benefit of that ritual situation is that it's almost like the, the shaman will have control of the whole mm-hmm. journey for you, other than what's going on with, with you taking the the sacrament and what's going to go on with your mind and your, your healing and all of that. But the whole setting is being very controlled and, and the music keeps things moving along It almost like yeah. changes like, like scenes of a of a of a movie, or like different acts of a play, or something like that. Every time a song stops and right. you know takes the waves, so yeah. it's you're, you're in a suggestive state,
1: um, and that's scary to some people too. Um,
3: yeah.
1: you're in a you're in a position where, um, as uh, uh, Chris Christopher Timmerman, I think his name is, just did a study on, um, on a uh, brain imaging and DMT, but determined his basic takeaway from it was that de- taking DMT is like dreaming, but with your eyes open. Yes. And you know how it is when you're dreaming, you experience a nightmare. Unless you're lucid and can snap out of it, you're not going to know you're having a nightmare. You're going to have, you're going to be in that experience. And yeah. and the lines blur when you enter what's called the third stage of trance. When you enter that, that stage where you're interacting with, and that's where the magic really takes place too.
2: Pure magic.
1: But once that stuff starts taking place, you're psychologically in a position to where you can no longer determine, uh, unless you're skilled at it and can navigate the territory or have a, a guide there that um. can work through it, reality from fiction. And and that takes us back to every day, you know, in the backs of our minds, just behind the, the skylit, theaters in here is a backdrop of, of shadowy movements and things that, uh, that influence us throughout the day that, that push us one way or another, secret drives and impulses and motivations. And, and you know, all that stuff comes to the fore, uh, furthermore. But uh, I could go on and on on this stuff, man.
2: <laughs> uh, yes, this, this is a, a big It <laughs> should be well-researched. Uh, for sure, um, I was gonna say, out of all the the avenues that you can take um, for journey, what do you think is the one that? Um, well, what one? What's your favorite? And then, what is one that you think uh, should be more widely used and widely accepted for all the many different um, different aspects that that it has, all the different properties, the the, the benefits. My favorite, entheogen. Yes.
1: It's hard to say a favorite, you know, because like a lot of times the experiences are are, uh, difficult. So I don't know. I can't always say I like them. I say they work, but I don't always like them. So it's hard Mm -hmm. to say a favorite. Uh, But the one that works the best for me uh, tends to be psilocybin, psilocybin mushrooms. (laughs) I I grew up in the South and... Um psilocybin mushrooms grow all over the place and, and uh green fed cow uh pastures here and oh. uh ever since my preteens, you know, I've I've been navigating that space and kind of making that ally and uh and I, I've gotten just amazing personal results from it. But that being said, uh all 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 of them have their place. They all kind of work on different Um, sides of the psyche even though for example they all might work on the serotonin receptors like all the true hallucinogens like mescaline, peyote, DMT, LSD Um, but they all have their own little nuances to them DMT even before well, psilocybin chemically is for phosphoryloxy in and DMT meaning it's it is DMT it's just nature's orally active form of DMT that doesn't need an MAOI to make it work when you take it so that is DMT but those experiences those realms are vastly different uh, I you know the psilocybin realm for me is very uh and full Intellectual, and whereas uh, the DMT experience is something completely different. It's it's something more um, for me, uh, almost like a return to to oceanic kind of womb bliss feeling, you know. And I'll get inklings of that on on psilocybin, but with DMT, I don't tend to get the interaction with entities that most people. I get this complete dissolution into um, what what I could only describe as just boundaryless oceanic bliss. Uh, you know, and I've read psychological theories that say that this is a return to um, womb consciousness. You know, Groff talks about this uh, natal consciousness and um, uh, Sigmund Freud's uh, psychiatrist, Otto Rank, he wrote a book about birth trauma where he talked about... Uh, the belief that some of these states were a recovery of the mental state attained in the womb. And I, I can't say whether that's true or not, but I can definitely say that the uh, the analogy um, is fitting. It fits to, to describe the experience. But psilocybin would have to be my favorite.
3: Awesome.
0: I heard uh I heard you talking on another podcast about taking high doses of uh DMT without the M A O I. What was that experience like versus the do you normally smoke it or, or do you do like ayahuasca or something I have like that? COPD, so smoking it is difficult for
1: me. That's how I've primarily done it, but these days I don't really since my son was born, I haven't really experimented um done any ceremonies I've just been kind of focused on being a parent Um, but back when I was using DMT regularly we were smoking it and uh, smoking it is vastly different than eating it
3: yeah
1: if you take ayahuasca with an MAOI number one for me the nausea is uh, brutal you know lots of people you hear about it being the purge la purga because people throw up have diarrhea I tend to have the second and it's not pleasant
3: oh man but
1: the thing is MAOI DMT doesn't do that you can take uh, just pig hormone by itself and you'll get that same effect and it's not it's not pleasant it's just wreaks havoc on the guts but um, you know but some say that that's part of the healing mechanism that it's doing work in there and you do purge people have purged things that you don't see coming out of human bodies often just absolutely parasitic looking things, you know, but, uh, but whenever you take it without the MAOI, uh, even though we had taken massive amounts, because we kept opening our dose, so trying more and more to see if we could get any result. Cause we had, we had heard from um, an alchemist named J. Eric Laporte who owns a uh, Ayurvedic pharmaceutical company in India um, that he had figured out a way to overwhelm the m a o i with the with this d m t by just taking two more and more way more than you have to, so it 's wasteful to do this, but at the same time it it's it 's important to show that it works because in this literature uh in Cagliostro and Melisino, they don 't mention an m a o i they don 't talk about mixing it with anything else they just say this acacia. Of course, they could have the secret of how to prepare it behind closed doors, reserved for
2: yeah their members. Yeah, other
1: level of of whatever consists of, but they don't mention it. So it was important for us to experiment and determine whether or not this was possible. So that being said, I did get an effect, but I did not get an effect like a, I got with ayahuasca or smoking tea. I got a very physical. Um, buzz. I got a very lightheadedness. Uh, I got what felt like the onrush of smoking DMT, but at no point did I feel like I was tripping. I felt very uncomfortable, if you want to know the truth. For, for a couple of hours, I felt, uh, I felt the most anxiety I've ever felt in my whole life, <laughs> but never did I break through. And that's common with some uh, psychedelic experiences anyway. If you don't take enough to break through, you just sit there on that hum and vibrate, and that can be pretty unnerving, but that's as far as
0: I got with it. Hmm. Awesome. Yeah, that's funny that you say favorite, because I thought the exact same thing when I did I uh, Was uh, when people asked me about it, they so tell me about your experience. How was it? I'm like, okay. The very first thing I always tell people, it wasn't fun.
3: <laughs> right. I love it, it. It wasn't
0: fun, but it I was. But it. it was massively. It can- useful, and it was helpful, and it did Immensely. things, immense, immense yeah. things, that was, yeah, not fun. <laughs> I'll,
2: I'll say, like, um, for my journey, um, the first sip, you know, waited, and other participants were fully participating, and I wasn't, and I just sat there, I was meditating, I had my intention set, and I could feel more of a, a body. You know, and I'm like, okay, so it's starting to kick in, but it, was, it wouldn't happen. And even the shamans were, like, looking over, and they're like, look at this guy, man. He's, like, he's all there. And then then he kind of came over, and they're like, are you experiencing anything? And I go, no, no, just my body. And they're like, that's not, like, you took quite a, a substantial amount. And I'm like, I'm ready for my second sip. And they're like, wow, okay, how much, you know, and I said I would like the same amount. And they're like, just to let you know, once you take the second one, everything will change. And I'm like, I'm looking for, like you said earlier, that breakthrough, you know, like I, I'm pretty well-versed in, in this realm. So I want to do enough to do have a breakthrough. And I, I did a second one and then, then the first one kicked in.
3: <laughs> yeah, that's how it goes. Every-
2: <laughs> I was like, great, this is great. And then, um, you know, the other participants are participating and I'm pretty, pretty normal and then uh then the first one kicked in i'm like great i just did the second sip and this is going to be a long journey but uh, it was it was beautiful and then i was really worried cuz i couldn't purge you know i want to purge i knew it was part of it and not and, everyone does yeah i couldn't purge until the very
0: end and then you were on one you, one thing you stuck to the diet really really well too I and i Mm-hmm. I believe the diet plays another role, and I know you say the M- the MAOIs just mess with your gut, but but I think the the diet definitely helps to play a role in the effects because you're gonna get some nausea. You, I mean, you're taking stuff into your body that is just, you know, really I didn't happy. have any of it. Yeah, I I I my shaman said that there wasn't always a physical purge, but sometimes there was emotional or, or spiritual. And, um, cause he said there was like three or four different paths that, 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 um, grandmother, Aya usually takes you down. And, and for me personally, my purge was, was emotional. So I shed a lot of tears during mine, but I, I, I had some of that as well.
2: They would just come out on their own. I'm like, what what is this? was amazing. <laughs> and then there was times where, you know, you're going up and down and, um, but I finally when I was able to purge, I was so happy. I mean, um, it finally kicked in when I finally stood up and the ceremony was over. They were like, on a scale of one to ten, uh where are you at in your journey right now? I was like 55. They're
3: like, oh, okay,
2: <laughs> let's sit down. There was like eight of them just going around like this. <laughs> but uh, when I stood up to try to walk outside uh into the desert, <laughs> um then that's when the kind of emotion hit me, and I was like, "Oh, oh, oh! Finally, I feel it." You know, like I'm ready because I wanted to have that part of the experience as well—to have the purge. And um, once it happened, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good at purging physically, like that. So it just happened, and got right back to it. I was like, "Great, I feel great." Let's. What do you guys <laughs> want now? And it was like, "What the heck?" But it's a wonderful experience. The, the ayahuasca was by far my my favorite. Um, and i I had results on all of them, but the ayahuasca was a hundred percent interactive and that I wasn't ready for. And I was like, how can this be possible to be that interactive and to find answers that I didn't know? Um, I mean, I was Googling stuff afterwards. Like, how do I know that? Like that's, it's, it's an amazing, um, the effect I have,
3: I, when, when I,
1: when I take ayahuasca and I, I really get enough for it to get in there the sensation i get is that something is something far more intelligent than me is there. working for me like a puzzle and it's opening up every little crack and sweeping shit out and making it fit mm-hmm. back together snug you know and it's uh, i really get this this sensation that something is in my body yeah conscious you know and i i'm a psychological guy i'm not a, i don't really I'll adopt the spirit model when I'm in that state and I'm convinced that that's the model I need to adopt. But most of the time when I'm like in this kind of detached, c- c- sober kind of state, I'm a psychological guy. You know, I look at that stuff as me projecting and, and a part of me, I'm sensing, you know, there's a, a what would we call it? a detachment of part of my psyche, a mobilization and projection and, uh, but that's not what it feels like when you're on it. It's a it's a very specific, unique feeling that something area. is aware of you and it's inside you. And it's
2: it's I wasn't very, ready for that. It's unnerving for me. It it, it was a little bit because like you said, like I'm a really logical guy. So I'm sitting there, I'm like, okay, these are the feelings. I'm going through my little checklist. And all of a sudden, it's like something that wasn't me. It was like, well, you forgot that checklist. Okay, thank you. Like, wait, wait, what? What the heck? And like, you yeah. start interacting and it's like, wait a minute, that's not me. Like, I'm not doing that. Is that not me or what, what's going on? There's all these
1: theories about that. You know, McKenna talked a lot about the voice that happens on <clears throat> psilocybin and ayahuasca. It's a, they're tryptamines. It's a tryptamine phenomenon or this other kind of happens. And, you know, he, he talked about at one point, this book by a man named Julian James called the uh, breakdown of origin of consciousness and the breakdown of the bicameral mind. But it was basically his theory was that uh, for ancient Greeks, that the corpus callosum wasn't completely formed like it is for us. And that whenever one portion of the brain communicated the other portion of the brain interpreted as a second person and this is why people would hear more often back then the voice of god and voices following daemons geniuses that they would have with them that would inform them throughout the day and why we don't have that now um but uh but yeah it's a fascinating phenomenon because when you experience it there's no uh there's no question about the the uniqueness of it it's It's not yeah it's like there's something (laughs)
3: Fuck. yeah yes good times
1: but good times. Uh, uh terrence mckenna he was talk- talking to albert hoffman who discovered the psychedelic effects of lsd and i don't remember the exact quote but he says something to the effect of what do you prefer lsd or psilocybin because he not only did he discover the psychedelic effects of lsd he also synthesized psilocybin so he said which do you prefer or oh. Uh, LSD. What do you prefer? And McKinnis says, "Well, I prefer mushrooms because it feels like yeah. something's something's there with me." And Hoffman says, "Well, that's why I don't like mushrooms because there is something in there."
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh. Times. I want to go journey right now.
2: <laughs> no. What time is it? Nine thirty. Nine forty-five. It's all good. It's time for it. I like doing uh, sunrise ceremonies, man. That's the most beautiful yeah. thing you can see. That's the first time I've ever been I understood
1: really yeah. what, what the word worship meant, was when I watched the sunrise after a trip. There's tears streaming down my face. Oh, for
2: sure. One of the, one of the best experiences I've ever had, um, it was with uh, LSD, and uh, it was sitting on top of a hill in San Pedro and looking over the LA Harbor with the sun coming up. And the clouds just lit on fire. And it was it was a living, breathing painting. I just sat there, and I was so, like, taken back. I was crying. And the person I was with, I was like, man, I hope they don't see me crying. And I look over, and they're just bawling. <laughs> I'm like, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, it's like you can feel the colors and how beautiful it was. Uh, but I'll never forget that i know yeah. once though know, i experienced that i'll go this is it man i want to see these journeys and 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 experience this and what is what really is this like i don't want to just sit in the backyard and oh look at me i was a, i really want to be serious about it and see what i can attain from this yeah they're
1: sacred yeah. visions are sacred and we need to treat them like that you are the entire Judeo-Christian model is predicated upon visions people had. Yes. All of a sudden we just dismiss them like they're hallucinations, but they should be treated as uh, I I think as sacred forms of art studied, you know, like a book is studied. They, they, not only do, do they tell us something about us, they tell us something about our entire people and our place in the universe and deity. And uh, it's just, the kind of stuff that comes to the fore uh, during these journeys, it's right up there with, um, with some of the highest philosophy you'd ever read and you're getting it uneducated from like, like we said, another, you know, sometimes a voice is dictating to you. I mean, the absolute most transcendental philosophy that you have ever encountered and it's right there in your own head, watching the sunrise, it's,
2: it's amazing it's It's truly an experience i I personally believe uh, just about every human being should have uh, a capability of experiencing it uh, an opportunity to do so. I think it's life altering you know I think a lot of people will be doing a lot of different things or are viewing life very differently if they did have a professional experience you know in a controlled area where they can have a really good experience. Um, I think it would change the lives of many people and their their outlook on, on life and humanity.
3: Yeah.
1: Well, I, you know, not to bash on any branches of religion or Christianity or anything like that, but I, I was raised Southern Baptist, which for me did not have a, an element of worship to it. I had no idea what worship meant, like I said before. Never really understood that word until I took a psychedelic. And then it dawned on me that I was worshiping. In a state of worship, and it's uh, a—that's—I think that's what a lot of people in our culture are are missing: worship. You know, just a genuine state of of being in awe of the universe and our existence, and
0: being being in the presence of true divinity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You didn't. I I I also was grew up in a Southern Baptist church, and I the same thing. I saw a lot of politics. I saw a lot of of things that. went against the teachings that were supposedly being inculcated into us and that's why i got out of it and and i tell people all the time i found the beginning of what you're saying worship within masonry you know i found true brotherhood i found fellowship i found a, a space to be able to to find my own spirituality and and connect with divinity and and absolutely
1: Masonry has a way of kind of removing all the superfluities so that you just kind of get a simple picture of the base, the base truth of the base problem, man and God, man and God, you know, the brother and brotherhood naturally extends from that and our place in the world. But masonry has this ability to strip it down and just say, what's the, what's, what can we all agree on here that is the dilemma? and it's man and god and how how do we be act with each other and in the world and without any dogma without any you know masonry says it's not a religion and it's not but it's definitely spiritual
2: it's a framework for that absolutely oh definitely so what, what
0: would you say spiritual
2: what would you say is um going back to your book the, the acacia plant what is his purpose in freemasonry well, you know, you've gone you and you discovered the DMT aspect in it. What would you say it's its function? I mean, this is just a hypothetical, you know, for argument's sake. And we're not going to give away any secrets. But what do you think its place is in Freemasonry? With the knowledge that you have from your book, what would you say it's its, its place? Gnosis. And I'll
1: say that because in the ritual, what do they say specifically? That the acacia represents innocence and the immortality of the soul right so if it in the immortality of the soul because it's an evergreen
3: uh, right but
1: how do you prove that you know granted you have to already believe in in certain ideas before you can become a freemason but when they say that in the ritual that you have an immortal soul how can they demonstrate that for you they can only you can only accept that on faith but if you experienced it, if you experienced it in an out-of-body experience, an OBE, is what, as it's called, mm-hmm. and saw firsthand that your consciousness wasn't limited to being in your physical body. And whether or not you're actually leaving your body or not, because it's not the point, because that's the sensation. That's how these people would have interpreted the experience. So when they say that the immortal, that this represents the immortality of the soul, and then they show you by taking it that you have an experience of transcending matter or the bodily frame, showing that there's some continuity of consciousness beyond death, which is what the visionary experience is very much like, traveling through the heavens. You know, you read the book of Enoch, you read Ezekiel, yeah. all these heavenly journeys, leaving the body. Sometimes they'll have the body with them, you know, sometimes you'll read visions where the the severed head is carried along with them, but the basic idea is is a flight, a shamanic flight, a visionary, mm-hmm. you know. So I think the ultimate purpose of it is to provide notice of that fact. To say, believe, do you believe in God? Do you believe in the immortality of the soul? Right on. Let's see them. Let's 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 show what we've interpreted to be the experience of those things. And what happens then is gnosis sets in. There's no, there's no need for faith once gnosis sets in because you know, you have knowledge. Nothing can shake that. Now I say nothing. You know, you, there's always the, the uh, uh, Cartesian demon of doubt that could step in and say, well, maybe you didn't experience that. Maybe it was a hallucination or a dream, or maybe you're fudging your memory a little bit, or maybe it's wishful thinking and you were just on a drug or right. any of this stuff. But that's where again faith has to come back in, and you have to have faith in your gnosis and say, "No, I had that at that moment, I knew I might not know now, but at that moment, I knew
2: It's like you said earlier about letting go and having that experience, mm-hmm. let go of that doubt just to let go and and go for the ride and take it for what it is in the moment,
1: absolutely you know afterwards,
2: definitely you, you know have some have some uh
1: some rationale, some oh, sure. look at it for as a, as an object objectify it some but at the same time I mean in the in those moments whether I don't care whether any of the listeners believe in God or the soul or not in those moments they are real you know there is a God you know there is a soul you know there are spiritual forces right here I could doubt it all day long but in those moments I knew and I have faith in that gnosis and that's what fuels it. I think that's the real beauty of it is once you've had it a, you'll never forget it. It changes your consciousness forever. You can't expand something and shrink it back down. When you are talking about consciousness, you never go backwards when you've been initiated into something like this. Um, right. And it also shows what's possible. You know, it says, all right, this, let's say this is an end game. What you just experienced, now do it without the drug, because it's possible. there, there are yes. techniques to induce anything that you can do on a drug. You can do off of it. And one example I use of this in my book is MDMA, uh, just something as simple as forgiveness. You know, I, I remember having an arch enemy growing up, this guy that if I could have just got my hands on him, I would have torn him to shreds, man. But the first time I took a, a, a hefty dose of MDMA, it hit me that if I could see him right then, all I could do was hug him and tell them thank you for teaching me something about myself <laughs> and within that state that I had to be like why can't I think like this when I'm sober what's different you know and the difference is, is just that subtle transmutation it's not it's not always something we can do but sometimes there is something we can do you know and, and magic I think this is magical territory getting into really being able to I hate to say manipulate, but dance with this stuff, you know?
0: It's definitely shows the medicine characteristics of the sacraments when you can take something away from it, especially if it's something to that effect of someone that you just hated so much that Mm -hmm. why can't I just love them? I mean, clearly that's a medicine that's helping you heal something within yourself. I mean, obviously you're doing the work, but forgiveness happened in me you know
1: why did it take a medicine why did it take a substance and and it, yeah. it did it's, I'm not saying it shouldn't have taken a substance it took a substance but now it's time for me to figure out how to how do I do that yeah. you know it's possible if it's as if it's so trivial that I can flip it on and off with a drug then it's trivial and my emotions aren't that important we can work on that stuff and it's possible it, it gives me hope you know
0: for sure awesome. Hey, I got I got a question. I saw one of the uh, one of the lines in uh, the book um, Pythagoras's hecatomb. Yeah, talk to me about that. I'm very curious. Okay, so it's weird.
1: Anyway, you know, you encounter this in in the ritual where they tell you that Pythagoras um, discovered his theorem and sacrificed a hecatomb. Well, a hecatomb is a hundred bulls,
0: right? Well, a hundred, and he was a vegetarian.
1: That's right. Strict so vegetarian. Why would do that? But but avidly spoke out against animal sacrifice and ritual. So why would they do that? What does that mean? You know, it's obviously wrong, and they and we know it's wrong because they tell us he he screamed Eureka upon his discovery. He didn't scream that Euripides did when he discovered how to find out if gold was actually gold through displacement by placing it in the water when he was in the bathtub jumps out naked running through the streets. Eureka, I've found it, you know. So anybody who's studied the the early days of science and they hear this from the Pythagoras story in the ritual, it's automatically going to say, well that's not true. And he was a vegetarian. So when you're when you're faced with stuff like this in ritual that's blatantly wrong, what it is is an invitation to look deeper and say, what's going on here? And this is one of the most complex things going on in the ritual. Uh, and it's often overlooked because of its complexity. But if you read in Porphyry, Porphyry was a, a, a philosopher, he was an initiate of um, the Eleusinian mysteries. But he said, Those in the know know that Pythagoras's bull was made of flour. And so, when you started investigating this tradition of flower bulls, there's this tradition of sacred bulls, and it, where bulls are treated as a uh, theramorphization of the crops, of grains, so they'll take this bull, they'll scatter him with oats. You see it in the the Iliad, Homer's Iliad, where they take a bunch of bulls and scatter them with grains before they slaughter them. Um, You saw it with uh, 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 the tarabolium in ancient Greece, where they would slaughter the bull and initiate people with the blood. There's implications of it in the the Mithraeum and the Mithraic mysteries and what they call the taroctony. But this act of slaying a sacred bull that through that slaying, because they represent the first crops and the first fruit, contributes to a good crop and a good fruit, a a good uh, uh, harvest. So it takes you all the way back around through the byways of the And you can get a lot of this uh, bovine symbolism stuff in Jamie Paul Lamb's first book, Myth, Magic, and Masonry, which he he really does a lot to explore. the bovine undercurrents behind masonry, particularly the Annulocius, our, our our system of dating, which we date in the era of the eon of Taurus. Um, but I'll leave that. Y'all definitely get Jamie on your show if you hadn't had had yeah, him. Had, had him. That yeah, was a good talk with him. Uh-huh. With him. <laughs> but yeah, so the bottom line is there's something else going on, um, you know, and and it has a lot to do with. Uh, with this sacrifice of, of a, of a, of a grain, a grain sacrifice. And, and of course, you know, I, I try and explain that even further in my book and I still don't think I've satisfactorily explained it. I just pointed out the oddity of it mainly um, because it's strange. Uh, why would these inconsistencies be in the Masonic ritual? And yeah, i'd to? heard
0: that I'd heard as well from from other people that if you if you come up on inconsistencies that's where you need to stop and go down rabbit holes and I, the main thing to
1: get us to look at are the mystery traditions that preceded us that were encircled around these bovine cults that is connected with our Anno Lucius in this age of Taurus specifically um the idea that we were preceded, at least in spirit, by the Mithraic mysteries, you know, by the Sibylline mysteries, by any number of these mysteries that were centered around um, grain. And that might sound strange, but you think about um, Osiris. You know, Osiris is a solar god, but he's also a grain god, which is why he has a a green face. You know, he represents the, the, the connection between the sun that pulls that grain up out of the ground the connection between astrotheology and agro theology. And if you're, I'm sure you've seen the, the correlations between the hieramic legend and uh, the ties to the Osiris myth and the acacia tree there and mm-hmm. uh, similarities. So I think right. that's the ultimate uh, takeaway that I put in the book. My, my best takeaway was that it was trying to get us to look at
0: these traditions that preceded us. That's awesome. So what, uh, Tell us about the book you're working on now again. Well, okay. So my first
1: book, you know, I was able to point out um, this secret tradition behind the everyday facade of 18th century Freemasonry, where they were using acacia in a psychedelic context to initiate their candidates, but I couldn't show how that got there. So through, you know, what we spoke about earlier with the Royal Society, um, and, uh, Dr. John Dee and Edward Kelly, um, I came to find this, this lineage, you know, that essentially went from, uh, Edward Kelly, he allegedly discovered a red powder, um, along with a book called the Book of Dunstan. Dunstan, St. Dunstan was, uh, the, um, he was head over the Abbey uh, at uh, Glastonbury and it's in the Glastonbury Rubin ruins where according to um, Falconelli, uh Kelly found this red powder in this book. Well, he believes that this red powder is the philosopher's stone. It's the, or how, or at least the prima materia. And he believes the book will tell him how to make it. And so He goes in search of the greatest alchemist he knows at the time, which is Dr. D, Dr. John D. Unbeknownst to him, John D has already kind of given up on alchemy at this point and is more interested in politics and communicating with angels for the purpose of manipulating world politics. He's not really interested in alchemy. So when Kelly shows up, he finds this out and finds out that D needs a scryer and D has already tried a couple of scryers and they don't work out. He's not impressed. Um, and he sends them away and Kelly shows up and immediately dazzles him with communications with angels. And these, these communications go on for seven years. They take him all over the globe talking with different uh, royalties. Um, but the bottom line is, uh, Elias Ashmole, who was a um, member of the Royal Society. Well, one of the early, big like, time. Of, um, he was John Dee's biographer. And he was the first person to document Edward Kelly's discovery of this powder and their use of it. So when he joins the Royal Society, he's already investigating it. He had been working with Dee's system. He had gotten a cache of papers that he bought from a man um, and been working with Dee's system for a couple of years when he finds out that Robert Boyle, who was, he's considered the first chemist, he was the founder of the royal society, is also interested in this red powder. But this, he's following this guy named Wenzel Saylor, this alchemist. Wenzel Saylor also is in possession of this red powder. And they get, the royal society gets this letter from a man named St. John, St. George Ash, who tells them Saylor's powder was acquired through Kelly at Rudolph's court because kelly was rudolph's court alchemist so they're like wait a minute we're both looking for this powder i'm looking for it to work d system because i think that's the powder that this powder makes them see angels and then he goes and tells boyle look i think i've this powder you're looking for it's the same powder and in the letter he says well if it's a an incorporeal substance that induces communication with uh Excuse me. If it's a corporal substance that induces communication with incorporeal spirits, it must be a drug, and that's what sends them off on this search for different psychedelics. So the new book shows that that transmission all the way from um, Dee and Kelly up through the Royal Society into Masonry and then beyond. Uh, because, for example, after um, Ashmole gets the Royal Society in search of this powder he appoints a man named john pordage as the rector of this parish pordage is considered one of the fathers of theosophy he's a student of jacob burma and uh, Johann gichtel well pordage after he becomes rector of this parish under ashmole all of a sudden he and his wife start hallucinating badly They start seeing demons in the bricks of their houses and they're freaking out so bad they got hammers and they're chipping at their chimney, trying to beat the demons out of their bricks. I mean, they are tripping. These people are losing their minds. And the theosophers, the modern theosophers read this and they say, no, they were having actual experience of, of the hellish side of matter. And they were seeing the, and I'm like, no, these people were tripping. If it was one person, (laughs) You could say, you know, even two in, in France, they have, uh, there's a French term for a mental illness called phallie adieu, madness shared by two. So we still can't rule out madness. And I guess we can't rule out spiritual experience. But to me, it sounds like they're tripping, seeing things that aren't there. So when I started really researching that, it turns out that he is preoccupied with a red powder, a red tincture that he's written this whole treatise about. So this red powder keeps following these people uh, all the way from Kelly, Ashmole, Desaguliers. now we're at Pordage. Pordage, it transmits from him into, I don't know if you're familiar with the Ephrata community that was founded in in America, the first theosopher community under uh, uh, Kelpius, was his name Kelpius and Zimmerman? Well, there was a theosophical community established there. And they had an alchemy lab that was set up, and they were all interested in this red powder and had this retreat ritual that they had gotten from, ultimately it was written by Paracelsus, but they acquired it, I believe, through Pordage. And uh, one of the guys, Renier, wants to work this ritual. And it's a... It's, 40 day retreat in a cabin where you're given more and more and more and more of this red powder. Awesome.
3: It, awesome. it
1: tells you the ritual that at one point you're going to shit the bed. You'll have to have somebody change the bed linens. It's all this nasty shit. It says your fingers are turned, your fingernails will turn black and fall off and your skin will fall off, which I interpret as shamanic dismemberment a phenomena that happens with ayahuasca and DMT, uh, where you imagine your body to be taken apart and put back together. Yeah. Uh, but so Renier, he says, I want to do this. And they tell him, no, you're not ready. You just joined the community. You haven't even studied. And he's like, well, I'll do it myself. And he takes the manuscript, goes out in the woods, builds his little hut, and starts taking it every day, doubling the dose, doubling the dose, and um, completely loses his mind. It was reprodu- <laughs> the, the report is reproduced in um, a book by Sachs on uh, early German pietism in Pennsylvania but he says that he completely lost his senses, that when they found him, they had to chain him up and they whipped him for days trying to get his senses back to him. And that finally he got his senses back. But if every if, if ever things get chaotic around him, he again forgets who he is and where he is and just completely overdid it. I mean, but, but so if there was any question about whether or not, this red powder was a drug that
0: should set that to rest
3: <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> so so the, so the newest book is kind of a quest for the whole lineage of red powder huh yeah so and what's take, it what step, called again
1: i take a step back from from masonic lodges and try and look at the problem from a global angle and what i realized was it's an alchemical problem, not a Masonic problem. In Masonry, that's just one dip, but the line of transmission is through Western alchemy. So the, the, the title of the book is angels in vermilion, the philosopher's stone from John D to DMT.
2: Awesome. And where can people find this book?
1: Well, I, I'm still uh, talking to a couple of different publishers, um, but it should be out probably about this time next year.
2: Awesome. And where can people find your, your last book?
1: It's on Amazon. Uh, you can get it from a publisher, which is best for me. That's The Laudable Pursuit. Um, and that's out of Oklahoma, ran by a great guy named Jason Marshall. It's also on Barnes & Noble. And uh, periodically you can get signed copies from me.
2: Awesome. This has uh, been an amazing interview. I really like to have you on the show. Yeah, it's your been a blast. Is awesome. It's a great conversation. It's nice to talk with somebody who has shared experiences.
1: Yeah, I love talking about this kind of stuff because it's, so, it's been so taboo for decades. And yes. You, feel, you get to, the, to feel like you're alone, and you're not alone. I mean, there are people out here exploring the depths of self and other, and, and we need to, uh, like Timothy Leary said, find the others.
2: Find the others. <laughs> find the others. That's our mission. All right, well, we're going to wrap this up. Because I think we will win over a little time because it's a rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah
1: well that's uh, that's always good then.
0: For sure, for cool. sure. All right, thanks again for joining us. Um, thanks to our viewers for watching us and um, we appreciate everybody. Thanks well, for some shout
2: outs to uh, all our fans and, and viewers. Thanks for holding it down during this crazy time. Uh, thanks for participating and watching. Keep following us to hear about new uh, episodes and new things that we're doing with the Mystic Lantern Lecture Series and uh, future Esoteric Yeah. Thank you, guys.
3: Thanks, Thanks, man.